so probably Aliens was the first big thing uh, he did, but I didn't recognize him. He caught me a little bit in The Abyss, which I was like, oh, this sort of an interesting, a darker dude kind of um, maybe he, he might end up being nothing, might end up being something huge. And then Tombstone rolls around. And there were so many good dudes in that movie and so many dynamic performances. Somehow his still stood out. I think obviously Val Kilmer's the one that everyone remembers from Tombstone. Absolutely. After that movie, I thought, oh, this guy, man, he's he could have a diehard run. He could have he could be a franchise dude. He's got that everyman look to him. It wasn't like the yoked out Schwarzenegger action hero. It was like the every guy dude. And just nothing like he he was you'd see him show up in the rock. You'd see him show up in like chain of command or something weird. But it was just never this like it just never happened. I mean, he was James Cameron's guy for a for a little bit there, which was nice. Yeah, to see. but I absolutely. agree with you. I don't know why it didn't fully work out for him. Yeah, I could have seen him either have like a TV show all to himself or some kind of franchise or, or whatever. And it's just. Every time he shows up, I'm just like, awesome to see you. And it, it even like the last time I really sort of recognized seeing him was Take Me Home Tonight. And you're just like, yeah, that's true. And yeah, he was the dad. And, yeah. You? <laughs> and you're just like, what are you doing here? Like, what the fuck are you doing here? He could have had Mark Harmon's career. He, totally. Oh, easily. He could. He could easily have mark Harmon him his way around town are you kidding me oh totally totally (laughs) (laughs) but anyway hey guys welcome to cigarette burns a movie podcast it's cole and jed uh we are very very excited about today's episode we're gonna do thelma and louise uh it's one of our favorites and i'm not gonna speak for jed but like i hadn't seen it about 15 years how about you uh, I see, I see this film every few years, honestly, okay. I'll watch it and cause I watched it a lot when I was a kid. We'll get to that in a little bit, but yeah, so it's, it's one of those where, oh, if it's been a little bit and I haven't seen it, got to put it on. It, it's one that I remember watching a ton back in the day and for whatever reason it fell off the rotation and now it's back and back for good. Like it's just one that there's so many movies out there that you want to rewatch and man, it's so good. God, it's so good. Yeah, it is. But uh, before we get to that, I want to hear some reviews because it's been a minute since we've talked. So uh, tell me what you've been watching. Yeah, I saw a couple things. Uh, one was on Amazon Prime. They have a film called Under the Silver Lake. It's with Andrew Garfield. It's from the director, writer-director of It Follows, which was a horror movie from a few years ago that I really enjoyed. I know you're not a big horror guy, but it was good because it kind of... I would say reinvigorated the franchise. It had a very 80s feel and it was just well done, well made. I wanted to see what this guy, David Robert Mitchell, had in store. And uh, it looks like the next thing that he did is Under the Silver Lake. This is a complete mashup, I'd say, of kind of homages to Hitchcock and Lynch rolled into a film. The film's a little long. The film gets crazy with the plot. But you never lose interest in it. And so he, just like he did with It Follows, he managed to keep your interest throughout the entire film. I give it a 7 out of 10. If you like horror, if you like psychological, crazy kind of shit, and if you like crazy performances, watch this. Because Andrew Garfield really gives a very good performance. This is the kind of stuff he needs to be doing because he really shines in this kind of shit. He didn't get to be happy, right? There was very little happiness, Good. if any at all. We we discussed, I think, in an <laughs> earlier episode, that's where he shines. Yes, we did. No smiling, no laughing, no joy of, of any kind, and he's your man. He is. He's who you want there. Uh, the other film I actually saw in the theater was called Loose. I give it a 7.3 out of 10. This has Tim Roth, Naomi Watts, Octavia Spencer, who's 
fucking amazing. I, as I cannot wait. I you know I'm not into these type of movies, but I will see anything Octavia Spencer's in. And I was so pumped you were seeing this. And I got even more excited when I saw your rating on our little rundown sheet. I'm like, oh, oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, 7.3. I, I honestly wanted it to be better. But even even what it was, it's still really good. Um, it gets into some interesting topics. It goes a direction you really don't see coming. I mean, the trailer doesn't give a ton away, I'd say. It's a good movie. It's it's definitely worth seeing. I wanted it to be better, but I really enjoyed it. Kelvin Harrison Jr., definitely one to watch for the future. I hadn't seen him in anything that I can recall, and he was he was the standout for me. Obviously, Octavia Spencer is fucking amazing in everything she's in, and she knocked this out of the park like she always does. Naomi Watts, Tim Roth, they're great in it. But uh, to see Kelvin Harrison and Octavia Spencer kind of go toe-to-toe, Really nice to see a young actor like that really uh, doing doing his thing. That's so great to hear. Yeah. So uh, what about you, man? What you been watching? So I saw The Peanut Butter Falcon. I can just tell you that it is as feel-good a movie as you could ever hope to see. It's You leave the theater and you're just sort of filled with this joy. But also, it's good to see Shia LaBeouf back doing some really great work. Uh, Dakota Johnson, who I hadn't necessarily seen in anything... Um, substantive just because I didn't see the 50 shades and I, I just hadn't really followed her career spectacular performance and newcomer Zach Gossagen who plays the character with down syndrome his chemistry with Shia LaBeouf was unbelievable like they worked so well off of each other and you can kind of see a different type of performance from Shia LaBeouf that y- you may not have seen you know in, in other films and he did this interview about like what it was like to act with Zach, and he said, I listened a lot more. It, it made me listen a ton more because Zach was so good at improvisation and sort of changing scenes that it had to take me off of my selfish track of what I thought a scene would have been. And I think it, I think it shows in his performance. There are some things in the script that are a little telegraphed. Um, it's a Mark Twain tale, and they hit that really on the head. I think it's even mentioned in the movie where they're like, oh, you want to go on this Mark Twain journey? But it's just about two guys that are on the run from different stuff, and there's a lot of elements and themes of rebirth and rejuvenation and sort of get, getting that second chance. And it's just about them kind of going from where they were down south trying to get to this wrestling school that Zach is obsessed with going to because he's always watched this wrestling tape of Thomas Hayden church is the wrestler called the uh, saltwater redneck, <laughs> which is an unbelievable name for a wrestler, by the way. Yeah, it's true. It, it's just about their connection and their relationship. And it's fantastic, man. It, I liken it a lot to little miss sunshine where, you know, I don't know that this is going to sweep up any awards or anything like that, but everybody should see it. It's the type of feeling you want coming away from a movie like this. And it hits all the right notes and it doesn't become too over the top mushy you know it doesn't rest it doesn't take the easy exit off the freeway every time it possibly could and for me it's an eight out of ten like i said excellent performances and this cast like listen to this you got labeouf and johnson john hawks is in it thomas hayden church bruce dern john bernthal then you got jake the snake roberts playing an old school wrestler (laughs) you got mick foley in it like there's just a ton of people in it and it's the setting is fantastic the visuals are really good. So I encourage everybody, get out there, check out the Peanut Butter Falcon. It's been a good weekend for sort of some original uh, movies to get out there. Some newer uh, directors, uh, younger filmmakers kind of putting their feet in the water. And this one really worked. So uh, I really like it. Like I said, 8 out of 10. 
And I think everyone will be really, really happy when they walk out of the theater when they see this movie. Well, the trailer had me hooked after that one joke, you know, what's rule number one? And that response and that line delivery is just perfect. Uh-huh. I'm like, I don't care if the rest of the movie sucks. Yep. It's worth it for that. And just to let you know, we're not going to spoil what the line is. Improvised. Of course, obviously. Yeah. It was just... <laughs> it. it, it the, the maturation of their relationship is the whole movie, man. It's so good. And you get afraid a little bit, or at least I did, when Dakota Johnson's character gets input because there's a lot of tropey things that I was afraid was going to happen. Just because it's, it's yeah. happened a million times before, and they steer clear of most of them, and they really make it, they forge a realistic sort of trio that you can buy for however much amount of time you've been asked to buy it. That's great. I think I'd read something uh, on Reddit, actually, where... The friends of uh, Zach, basically, he wanted to be in a movie, and they got this thing done. They got this thing made, and it's just, I think the story of how this thing's made is probably really interesting as well. Yeah, there's a behind-the-scenes story here to be told, and I haven't seen any behind-the-scenes featurettes or anything, but I did listen to another interview where Shia LaBeouf was like, yeah, they sent me this like five-minute video, kind of a proof-of-concept video of just some scenes with Zach, and he was like, it really fleshed out sort of the whole purpose of the movie and the whole uh, deal of the character and he was like, I I'm in now there were some, I I guess Ben Foster was attached for a while. Okay. But it's just great performances. Everybody who's involved brought it to this movie. uh, That is a very small film. Like I would be surprised if it made more than $15 million, but it's something that, you know, I'm happy it got made regardless. Like it doesn't really matter. The fact that this thing was made and that many people were involved in it, It's a testament to how good a movie can be when the right people are involved and you got a decent story and you're in and out in an hour 30. You know, they do not draw. Yeah, they don't draw this thing out. I'm fine with long movies. I have no problem with epics. If it takes that long to tell your story, this one doesn't rest and, and draw anything out longer than it needs to be. Well, great. And another film that doesn't, you know, rest with any of that and draw anything out and just kind of gets right into the action is the film we're going to talk about today. Thelma and Louise. Let's roll it. Thelma. I'll get it! Thelma, I've not told you I can't stand it when you holler in the morning. I'm sorry, doll. I just didn't want you to be late. Hey, how you doing, little housewife? Louise. Yeah, I still have to ask Daryl if I can go. You mean you haven't asked him yet? Thelma, is he your husband or your father? Thelma and Louise are going fishing. How come Daryl let you go? Because I didn't ask him. <laughs> He's gonna kill you! I left him a note. <laughs> Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma? Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? Did you see his butt? <laughs> Thelma, have you lost your mind? I'm uh, Investigator Howe Slocum, Arkansas State Police. You get your butt back here, Thelma, now. As you know, we've tapped your phone. What? Maybe you got a few too many parking tickets? Uh, Thelma, what happened? You're getting in deeper every moment you're gone. You want to step back and get in your car again, please? Now, I swear, three days ago, neither one of us would have ever pulled a stunt like this, but if you was able to meet my husband, you'd understand why. What? Boys, shoot the radio. 
for police radio, Louise. Thelma and Louise. How do you like the vacation so far? <laughs> We'll be drinking margaritas by the sea, Mama Cita. I love that trailer because you really don't know what's going on after that trailer. You think you're you're getting ready to watch a film that is one thing, and then it hits you when you actually watch the film totally with something else. So before we kind of get rolling on that, as usual, I want to ask you, do you remember the first time you saw this? How old you were? Like, what were the circumstances? Yeah, so this one was one where, like, it came out in 91, so I was like eight. So I obviously didn't see it when it came out. And my mom was really the one that was like, you should check this movie out. Like, you should check this out. And there were, it would be on cable from time to time, but I never really did that. And then I do remember being like 15 years old, 16 years old in high school. And that was the first time I saw it. And it was, you know, VHS, just picked it up in the video store, watched it, loved it. And I'd say for the next, you know, four or five years, it was one, it was in the constant rotation. I mean, I'd watch it probably once or twice a year because it's that unbelievably good. Like, how about you? Um, well, I was around the same age. I was around eight or maybe it just turned nine, depending on when it came out on VHS. And this is one of those where my dad rented it and like basically said, you need to watch this. So I pretty sure I saw this as an eight year old or a nine year old. Obviously did not understand any of it, any of the stuff that (laughs) happened with the, uh, with the rape or anything like that. And, but I got something out of it, um, which was good. And, you know, my dad's philosophy was always, I'm going to expose you to these films. You're going to have an experience watching them. You're going to watch them again when you get older, and you're going to watch them again and again, and you're going to get totally different experiences and take different things from them. So this was one of those that was on the rotation between, like, Goodfellas, this, and a few others that, you know, come home from school, doing some homework, pop this on in the background. So seen it so many times, but, uh, yeah, it was a long time before I really, in my opinion, got everything that was really happening in the film. And it's an interesting way to watch a film and kind of go back to it where you're like, I picked up this piece, didn't pick up this 90% of it, then got little bits and pieces along the way, and then finally put the whole thing together. So uh, it's interesting, yeah. But it's one of those, just like you said, every few years you got to watch it. Well, and I threw it in yesterday, getting ready for this, and it's probably the most I've ever liked it. I always thought it was great. I really did. But as I don't want to say fully formed adult, I think people might take issue with that. But (laughs) as working towards a fully formed adult, being able to watch that roughly the ages that Thelma and Louise were and the characters Mm -hmm. were, it brought a whole different perspective for me since I probably haven't seen it since I was 20, 21 years old. And so it, it blew me away in aspects that I absolutely did not register or even really think about the last time I watched it and the performances hold up the story holds up the the beats the 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 characters never seem false to me you know even even something like Christopher McDonald's character which seems ridiculous you're like (laughs) you're like yeah I know that guy that guy's fucking everywhere of course he is I mean and he gained like 36 pounds for that role like everyone is committed to playing the role they've signed up for. No one goes over the top. No one tries to take away from the story that they're trying to tell. I think this is one of those rare films where everyone is committed to the purpose and the message of the movie. Right. And, and one of the things going back to McDonald totally committing was even for his audition, because it was Gina Davis who said, hey, you should look at Chris McDonald uh, for this role. And he like grew the mustache. And I guess, yep. I guess he was told like polyester was made for this guy. <laughs> like that's what you need to think about and so he did the whole deal wore some 
just awful, you know, sort of get up and, and costume and everything for the, the audition. And when you got guys buying in on the audition like that, I mean, you kind of got to give them part. And I got to think Gina Davis was trying to throw him a little bit of a bone after, you know, breaking off their engagement for Jeff Goldblum. So <laughs> she didn't have a choice. It was Goldblum. That's the thing. It's the Goldblum. I mean, it's one of those where, yeah, well, your husband's going to make a movie with um, Angelina Jolie in her prime. Sorry, Jen. That's probably not going to work out <laughs> well for you. Well, that's not going to be the first time we throw Brad Pitt under the bus uh, <laughs> in this episode. And I should say that's not going to be the first time I'm going to be involved in throwing Brad Pitt under the bus. But uh, I will let down our Brad Pitt stands later uh, in this episode. <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm, I'm right there with you that I think that kind of everybody was bought in on it. You know, Ridley Scott was the last person he wanted to direct it after he optioned the script tried to find four or five other directors. And finally his assistants like, this is a gift. You should be directing this movie. And none of the other guys really had any vision for what the movie was supposed to be. And, you know, every actress in town seemed to want to be Thelma or Louise. And there was a bunch of great names attached. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer's attached, Jodie Foster's attached, all all these Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep were in discussion. I mean, it was just kind of everywhere. Yeah. The writer even wanted Holly Hunter and Francis McDormand. Yeah, exactly. And so different films could have been made here. But honestly, when I watch it, I can't picture anyone else in these roles. No. And this was right in the heyday of Susan Sarandon. Like, yeah, she was in so many good films and gave so many good performances. I mean, obviously, Bull Durham is the one that stands out to me just because I've never seen someone more suited for a role than her as Annie in that movie. Mm -hmm. But the same exact thing can be said for Louise. Yeah. I would never expect that she would be that character, given the other things I've seen her in. But I can't imagine anyone else. Like, she embodies the character perfectly. The character doesn't wear a ton of makeup. The character... Because, look, both of these women... I don't know how to say this without... I don't know how to say this in today's proper way, but I'm just going to say it. Both these women are fucking stunning. Yeah, they are. They're intelligent. They're everything. And she plays down all of her assets in this film, does, does Sarandon as Louise. Whereas Gina Davis is another beautiful, stunning woman, plays those up in the beginning, and you see the evolution of the character throughout. But Gina Davis was definitely not coming off any kind of murderer's row of of a uh, list of movies here. Like, Earth Girls Are Easy, one of my favorites of all time. I mean, when you talk about that cast, if you were to say that we're going to have Damon Waynes, we're going to have Jeff Goldblum, we're going to have Jim Carrey, and we're going to have Gina Davis all in a movie together. Oh, and I think, like, downtown julie brown or whatever her name was yep was in that thing too uh at another time and place you know 10 years later that would have been the biggest film in the world ever oh that would have been a 250 million dollar movie on salaries exactly. alone you know and she had beetlejuice she had like accidental tourists quick change which those last two honestly i've never heard of uh haven't seen either of them she has a very interesting career because the first thing she ever did was tootsie yeah exactly that was that was her introduction to acting because she was a model and then she got Tootsie, and then she did some TV. She just sort of floated around on the guest star circuit or, you know, one episode, that whatever. That bit part in Fletch. Right, yeah. And then she just sort of hit it. I think Earth Girls were, are easy. I think was a little more popular than even the filmmakers were expecting it to be, and I think she got a little, oh, yeah, totally. little juice off of that in Beetlejuice, and she's great in Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah. And she has she has a unique look, but she she's both... She she is very convincing in everything that you've seen her in. 
So yeah. she doesn't just have to play the very, very smart woman or the very, very beautiful woman or the very, very doughy-eyed woman. She she encompasses all that. She actually encompasses all those things in this film. I think one yeah, of the does. most unbelievable things in this movie is the maturation or change of both of these characters. Because mm-hmm. it's a very short time frame that we're talking about from the first scene of the film where they're at the diner to the last scene where there's a cliff involved. And... <laughs> The the changes, the confidence changes, and, and the attitudinal changes that, that occur, they're both believable and incredible to, to happen in that short amount of time. But I agree with you 100% with Sarandon because she is so just visually beautiful. She's obviously smart, but she was kind of being put into this like sexy ingenue, femme yep. fatale sort of role where it's like you've always got to be looking sexy. And in this movie, even with no makeup and everything, she's beautiful, but that's not what her part rests on. And yeah. that brought a whole nother level to appreciating her as an actress. I can't imagine what that was like for people in 91, but just for me where I'm discovering her, you know, I'm, I'm always eight, nine years behind the movies that came out when I was born. It was just like, whoa, you just can see it in rapid succession. How she goes from, oh, we've always got to have it a dolled up sort of situation versus uh, she's just a fantastic actress. And for Ridley Scott, I mean, coming off of, obviously he's done Alien, he's done Blade Runner, uh, I think Black Rain was the film he had done right before this. Uh, the thing about all these films that comes to my mind is they're all really fucking dark and not dark in terms of tone, dark in terms of they're filmed with no light. Yeah. Like they're very like kind of almost horror-esque and stuff like that. This film, on the other hand, takes place pretty much entirely in daylight. And the cinematography in this film is amazing. Now, are you with me? He definitely talked to Tony before he made this film. God, yes. This is the most Tony Scott, Ridley Scott film ever. I would never in a million years guess if you said one of the Scots directed Thelma and Louise. I would never say Ridley. Exactly. Ever. It's crazy. The one thing that Tony has over Ridley, and you just said it, is the use of light. Mm -hmm. Every single one of Ridley Scott's sort of epic films rest in a very subdued blue light darkly lit uh sort of panel whereas tony scott has never met neon he didn't love i mean he's like how bright can i get these lights please (laughs) how can i have the sun with something else in the foreground right at least in half of the film (laughs) i know man. and this is not a knock on the man because his films are look beautiful incredible top gun days of thunder all these movies are just Phenomenal. Well, True Romance is filmed, everything happens at night, and it looks like it's during the day. Yeah, it's what's crazy (laughs) about it. It's it's such a bright film, and everything is at 2 a.m. Yeah. When you start this film, when when you turn it on, I don't know if you felt the same way, but that theme hits, and I'm like, this is fucking Days of Thunder. This sounds just like Days of Thunder, but it's so good, it's different enough, that it's its own thing. And obviously, Hans Zimmer did, did both of them here. But right away from this from this movie in the introduction where you meet the characters, you understand everything you need to know about them. It's like you always say, it's a perfect mix of show, don't tell. And you're in it. Like, you're less than five minutes. You're like, I'm invested. I like these characters. Where are we going to go? Well, we, I, we talked about this with Spike Lee. And I love all filmmakers who use the credits as an opportunity. Not just to set the tone of the movie, which I think is a fairly simple thing to do with the music. But... I completely understand the mentality of the characters in that first five minutes as that score comes on and it's, it's wanting, it's depressed, but it's, it's yearning for something in that music. 
And I'm just going, wow, it just sort of put me in this mood. And I, I'm literally, I was taking notes on my phone as I was watching it. And I just put scores, a huge character. Like, it's just, it, it was mm-hmm. the first note I could think of. And you know, it's a Hans Zimmer score. And it's, it is a classic early nineties score. It, you would never, it's not a timeless score, but it absolutely puts me in the frame of mind for what my main character is getting ready to go through. And then you see the credits run through, and I love, just because the amount of names that are in this movie, it's just stupid. But I do think, and I didn't do all the research I could have done, and I'm really sorry, I try to be better than that, but I'm pretty sure that this is the last movie where Stephen Tobolowsky's name is above Brad Pitt. (laughs) I think you're you're probably right on that one. But I do have something about the cast here that didn't really make sense to me at all, and... I just, I guess I'll just come out and say it. How is JT Walsh not in this film? Uh, right? No kidding. I don't get it. Like, I, there, there's no way you make a movie in 1991 that's like this and not have JT Walsh. The only thing I can think of, because JT Walsh obviously would have to play the asshole. Of course. And one of them. The only, <laughs> yeah, right. But the only one he could be, because he couldn't be Harlan at the bar. Nope. Because nobody's going to believe for a fucking second that J.T. Walsh is picking up anybody in a bar. No way. The only person he could be would be Tobolowski, and it's like, do I really want Tobolowski taken out of the movie? I agree with you. The only other one I was thinking of him for, which I don't want him, because even though he would have done a great job, I love the performance that was given, is the fucking sick truck driver. Oh, God. See, we're going to talk. We gotta there's talk no about way him. he could be that guy. Yeah. But... I just, I just, he has to be in. He could have been one of the fucking FBI agents or someone somewhere. Yeah, he, he, he would have. The truck driver. Let's just talk about him now, okay? I just want to get yeah, this out absolutely. of the way. Absolutely. I just want to get this out of the way. I don't fucking get it. I don't understand it. I didn't understand it the first time I saw the movie. I don't. I didn't understand it yesterday. How you can have like all the talent involved in this movie, not just from acting, but from producing, from writing, from directing. Somebody auditioned to that guy. Mm-hmm. And they said, that's our man. When when he's, like, his reactions to stuff, I, I don't get it. I don't understand how he's in that movie. Whose cousin is that? Well, I don't think he knows how to speak English at all. It's fucking insane. It's crazy. It's But I don't know. I think he's perfect, honestly. I'm, I'm like, I have zero problems with, with the performance and the role because I think it's, Taking men, and this is, okay, maybe I'm reaching here, so apologies if that's what I'm doing, but whatever, I'm going to say it. I think it's taking men to their basis form of animal mentality and encapsulating it all in the worst human being you can imagine, putting all those negative qualities in a person driving a truck with the awful mud flaps, having the women get the revenge that every woman and every person honestly just wants on this piece of shit human being that's on the planet. And well, and I agree with that. I mean, he is a composite of the worst person on earth, but I think what would have been maybe more interesting for me was that person exists and doesn't like the worst person in the world doesn't have to be that caricature to be that obvious. And yeah, we got that in Harlan. Where he just yeah. look, he just looks like you know you're every every guy trying to pick up a girl at a bar and then turns into a rapist, and we find out through you know talking to a waitress that he's apparently a serial rapist. Yeah, but so I, I get that we've had those pictures of like well Chris McDonald, but Chris McDonald's also a bit of a caricature on purpose, and that would be probably one of my knocks on the film, uh, just from a probably a writing and directing standpoint. You never know who makes the ultimate decision there. 
I would assume mm-hmm. that rests more on Ridley Scott since he did purchase the script. Uh, so pretty much had autonomy to do whatever he wanted with it. But we made some caricatures that made it seem like as long as the guy has this many crazy attributes, then he's a piece of shit. And I would have liked to have seen a couple more Harlans. And we get we get two of them. We get him and Brad Pitt that seem like whatever decent dudes. But we also get the two just gigantic characters. And I guess I would have seen like I would have rather seen some slightly more regular appearing guys who do awful shit because that's probably a bigger problem because I think, you know, that trucker, it's like, yeah, he's obviously a fucking piece of shit. Like there's, it was so obvious and on the nose. I love his comeuppance though. I'm not taking anything away from them pulling him over. Yeah, it's a great scene. Oh, it's incredible. And I want it to happen to him. Like, don't get me wrong. That's who I want it to happen to. It was just maybe one fewer scene of them passing him and him the flapping the tongue and doing all that crazy shit. It just, to me, very minor nitpick, but I think one of the things that this movie, if it were remade today, might be like, you know, girls, obviously, you know, you know, young women and everything need to look out for that type of guy, but it's not just that guy. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be that bad for it to be dangerous, for it to be disgusting, for it to be inappropriate. So, you know, again, little nitpick. You know, the Daryl character, I just, every time I watch this film, the performance is spectacular, Mm -hmm. and he's only in one scene with Gina Davis, with Thelma, and I just, I know guys like that, and I still cannot believe they exist, and get women like that. It's it's ridiculous, and it still happens. It's always going to happen, I think, till the end of time, unfortunately, but it's just, you watch it, and you're like, this can't be real, and then you get older, and you're like, oh yeah, that's real. 100% 100% real. There's totally yeah. people like that. And it's fucking awful. It, it's it, His portrayal of Daryl is so many people that I, I think we all met. And that's uh-huh. what makes it that's what makes it funny and fucking terrible. Like, I found myself watching this laughing so hard and then going, God damn, so many times. Mm-hmm. Just, uh. But we're going to get through that as we work through the movie and, and kind of all the characters that just make you go, son of a bitch. Like that yeah. guy, that guy somehow 28 years on or 30 years on or whatever it is still around like, goddamn, that, that person should be extinct. But, you know, we, we have this incredible cast. You've got an early Madsen. You've got Harvey Keitel uh, doing maybe the worst Southern accent I could possibly imagine. Like my, <laughs> my boy Harv, not from Alabama at all. So. No. Well, Scorsese hasn't asked him to do that kind of accent before. So at this point in time, he was like, I'll try, I guess. That's what you want, Rid. <laughs> it wasn't. It, the funny part was is his character's like the one redeemable guy in the movie who's like getting it. Oh, yeah. He cares about them more than anyone. Like outside of, of Thelma and Louise, he cares about what happens to them the most. Well, and, and seems to understand and try to convince everybody else of like, do you not get why the fuck this is happening? Yeah. Yeah. But then he says words in that southern accent, and I'm like, damn it, Harvey. Come on, man. <laughs> Just a little voice work. That's all I'm asking for. But, you know, Tim Carhart, who's an who, who's one of those guys. You know, he's mm-hmm. been he's been in a thousand things as Harlan. Uh, it's just it's a good cast, and everyone is kind of all in on what they're trying to accomplish. They're all playing the same song, and that's fantastic. And when that happens, this is what you get. Yeah, it all comes together. So the film kind of starts out, and we've got Thelma and Louise. Louise works at a diner. Thelma's a housewife. Daryl's very controlling of her. Doesn't really give a shit about her, um, I think, except when he needs things from her. 
and you really get that impression. I love the way she's even like in the beginning when she's talking to Louise, she's eating the candy bar and she takes one little bite, puts it back in the freezer. And then the next scene, she's like taking another little bite. Love it. Everything's like rationed. Everything's perfect. You see how organized Louise is versus Thelma, who's kind of all over the place. And honestly, just very immature and young because she hasn't been exposed to the world because married Daryl at a young age and has been very isolated. He doesn't let her out a lot. I don't know. I don't know how Thelma and Louise met. That's not necessary. Right. But it's uh, they're very different people, but they get along and they have a friendship that's very true where they would do anything for each other. And you get that right away from them. Well, and the thing that I love about Thelma taking the bites of the Snickers, which was fucking genius, is she's having to sneak to get anything she likes in life. She's having to mm-hmm. sneak around to get any little piece of pleasure that she can possibly get. And even though she knows Daryl's not home and he's probably not coming home forever, you know, he's yeah. it's Friday <laughs> night. He's not coming home. And she's still like, oh, my God, is somebody around? I better take a bite and sneak it back. And then, oh, I, I just want a little, little another bite. It's little choices like that that make Gina Davis's performance stand out so great because you believe her every minute. Like when she's being strong in the movie and when she's being strategic and smart, you believe it. When she's being naive, you believe it. When she's, you know, doing these little things. It's just all such a great circular performance. It just hits all the edges. It's fantastic. I, I really think that one of the strengths of the script is them not going into the backstory of how they know each other. Exactly. I don't know. I don't care. Exactly. You're dropped into this world. You t- you grant the premise. These two are great friends. You see the chemistry between them on the phone. You haven't even seen them together yet, and you already like them, and you like what they have together. And the idea is, is that Louise's day manager at the diner is getting a divorce, so he's letting everyone use the cabin. So she's got the cabin for the weekend. She's going to pick up Thelma. They're going to drive there. They're going to fish. They're going to do whatever. They're going to relax, have a vacation. It's really a great, like, okay, cool. We're going to have something fun together. Obviously, Daryl will not let Thelma go. She doesn't ask him. She takes everything. Louise gets packed, goes, picks Thelma up. And I love the fact that they they take this photo because this is the beginning. This is them at this moment in time. We are capturing that because this is the last time they are going to be these two people together. And you know what's really funny, and, and I'm glad you brought up the photo, is first time I saw it, I didn't buy the photo. I didn't mind the thing, but I was like, who is taking a picture of themselves at the beginning of a road trip because no phones at that time, no camera phones, nothing. Yep. So I was like, you'd have to get out like a disposable or whatever. Like, it just didn't make sense <laughs> to me. I was like, that's such a, that's such just a, a Hollywood thing. And today I watched it and I'm like, 100% that's what happens. Like, oh, you, can't, you can't have a meal. An appetizer can't come to your table without taking a picture of it. 100% two people get in the car, snap a photo, and they're like, yeah, here we go. And, and it made it was like full circle, came all the way around. I'm like, I totally get it. it. I buy it. I love it. And it works exactly how you say, like, let's get a before. And then the movie ends on a still. It's just, it's just so goddamn good, man. I love, like you said, she packs all this shit. Right, they're going on this uh-huh. thing, and she. Pa- I mean, it is so funny that she packs a huge suitcase. She's bringing the net for these gigantic fish they're yep. going to catch on the fishing. <laughs> neither poles. of them know how to fish. I'm sorry. Nope. Like neither of them really know how to fish. They kind of they kind of allude to that, but they're going to bring it all. <laughs> and I love that she's stuff on hangers. All this shit doesn't matter, and she brings it all out. And then she obviously has a gun. Yeah, Daryl's got her a gun because she wants to feel safe at night. Because. Daryl evidently is gone for all at all hours. So we know Daryl's having affairs and sleeping with people, but 
The other great thing is Thelma alludes to that, but we never need to see it. We never need to see her calling the house and Daryl's somewhere at a hotel fucking someone. Or, you don't need any of that. This is about them. This is their story. And we never stray far away from them throughout the whole thing. And I just continue to love the fact that those choices were made. Because the men are not important to these women. It's them. It's them together. Right. Well, in, in any buddy movie, doesn't matter. Like, this is obviously, you know, I think we're going to try not to make 500 comparisons of Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but there's a ton <laughs> of luck. Yeah, right? There's a ton of them, especially as the movie goes along. <laughs> it's very difficult to avoid those. But in any buddy movie, it's just about them. It's just mm-hmm. about those two. Like, I don't care if you're watching 48 Hours. Like, it's about Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter about Gans. Like, all that shit's ancillary. The movie only works because we care about these two people. And that's what this movie did, is it didn't try to expand the universe just because atypically the two leads were women. And it just said, I- I'm writing a buddy movie. Doesn't matter what it is. And and really, you know, going back to the reviews, that's what P- Peanut Butter Falcon does so well, is yeah, I'm, I'm doing a buddy movie. I'm doing, if I'm telling Huck Finn, I'm worried about these two guys. That's all I'm doing. So the fact that they, they really clear the mechanism, as it were, and get rid... <laughs> of all the noise and just focus on Thelma and Louise, I could watch, I kind of wish this movie was 10, 15 hours long because the conversations they have and the interactions that they have with each other, it's compelling. Their chemistry is off the charts. Good. Yeah. You nailed it, man. You nailed it with that. But I do want to play the line real quick because I love the reason that Thelma gives for bringing the gun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Oh, Louise. Uh Will you take care of this gun? What in the hell did you bring that for? Oh, come on. Psycho killers or bears or snakes? I just don't know how to use it. Will you take care oh, of it? Put it away. Just here, put it in my purse. I mean, that's 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 just good writing. I'm sorry. <laughs> and great is. delivery, but just good writing. It is. Because that's so true. I, I can totally imagine. Fuck, if I was going on a trip, I might, I mean, I might... I don't know, bears, snakes, anything, like spiders, got to have that. We were, we were up in Alaska this summer, and we're getting ready to go on a hike, and it's like, okay, we got to get that bear spray, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, where are you going hiking? This place that, like, nothing but humans go hiking. They're like, probably, you know, bears don't like to be around humans, probably not a big deal. It's like, I will take the bear spray, please. If you just, I, I, I would like to purchase the bear spray from you, if that would be all right. <laughs> Give me the one with the holster. You got one with the holster? That's the one I want. I want to be able to quick draw. My bear spray. I've seen Werner Herzog movies, okay? I know I need bear spray. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think we actually, have we mentioned Callie Corey? This was her first script. Yeah, first script. Knocked it out of the park on the very first one. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. And she she's had a very good career. She's written a lot. She directed uh, Divine uh, Secrets of the I.I. Sisterhood. Very popular movie. I was always happy that it brought Angus McFadden back into the play. Because uh, big <laughs> Angus guy. But uh, this is just a remarkable script she wasn't a screenwriter at all at the time she just got struck by lightning one night and she was like this was the idea that i had and it just sort of spit it out and it it all came to fruition eventually so well that's one of those few careers that you can have where it's like no one is that thing until they do it the first time no one's ever a screenwriter until the very first script like no one goes to school like okay now i made all my preps (laughs) now i'm ready to be a screenwriter (laughs) don't make fun of the preps asshole i know that was personal (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, that's, I mean, it's just so incredible. A unique story, like a unique twist on a well-known story. Yes. That's what was so good about it was being able to put your own stamp on something. That's that's harder to do than it looks. And she did it in spades. So they obviously get going on this road trip. 
And you can just see like shackles come off of Thelma just as the car is driving away from the house. And, you know, we we should probably go back just a quick second. The the fall gag with Chris McDonald. (laughs) Like, God damn it, Homer. (laughs) I don't know what they're doing to that house, by the way. But what the I, I don't either, man. That's a lot of work on the driveway or something. When I also thought it was a great visual choice uh, by the DP and Ridley to have the garage door open at that point. Because it shows he's driving a Corvette with some dipshit fucking uh, vanity license plate. Uh, Yeah. Sorry to make fun of all you out there with vanity license plates, but this one was particularly bad. It was the one, if I recall. Yeah, I think that's what it was. But it had the garage door open to show what she gets to drive around. Yeah. Which was, uh, I believe the technical term is hoopty, but I'd have to double check that. Piece of shit, kind of Tercel looking kind yeah. of a, a vehicle. <laughs> yeah. Not a Corvette. I know that. No, no, no. <laughs> but anyway, so they get going and you just sort of see this joy, this unbridled joy on Thelma's face. And, you know, I loved watching Susan Sarandon just react to that. There weren't any words, but she was so happy. And you get this, this feeling that she cares so much about Thelma and she's so happy to see Thelma letting loose a little bit. But... There's this, there's always this look in Susan Sarandon's eye of sort of being scared or being, mm-hmm. being concerned. Cautious. Yeah. Ca- cautious is a far better word. Yeah. Scared isn't the right word. It's definitely cautious. And we all have that friend, right? We, yeah. we all know that person that's always like out kind of just always on a swivel, like always looking and we don't know why. And it's never really explicitly spelled out for us. And that's okay. We, we get, mm-hmm. we get enough nuggets to sort of understand why. But they decide to pull over at this bar. Thelma wants to pull over and have some fun and have a drink and just whatever, right? And what I love is this movie just is like, let's knock this fucking train off the tracks right away. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. I mean, they're in Arkansas. They're in a bar. They got country music playing. Thelma's like, I want a wild turkey with a coca back. Louise gets a margarita. I believe, and they're like, okay, they're going to let loose a little here. Like, they're not going to get to the cabin until after dark anyway, so Thelma, this is her vacation. She never gets to do this. Let me get a drink. Harlan shows up immediately, starts hitting on Thelma. It's amazing how these guys can just key in. Mm-hmm. Like, these, they just, they see, they're prey, they go right for it. He takes her dancing. Louise is very concerned right away, because she's like, I want us to get out of here as quickly as possible. Well, and Louise clocks him as a predator instantly. Uh-huh. Instantly. Yep. And I, I thought it was so genius. And this is another reason I think Tony Scott was involved in a lot of this production was, was anybody involved in a scene in this movie that wasn't sprayed down in sweat? <laughs> because I think we all remember Gene's uh, beach volleyball on the set of Top Gun. Yes, we do. A lot yes, of sweat in that nightclub, which is very true to what I'm assuming a very smoky Alabama honky-tonk bar would be uh, in the summer. I mean, just yeah. sweat everywhere. Harlan and Thelma start dancing. And Louise is all like, Louise dances with a guy, but you can tell she's kind of always paying attention to Thelma and yeah. leaves the guy right after the first dance. And you kind of see him in the background, like, oh, God damn it. I was. Yeah. <laughs> but he was a gentleman about it. Yeah, he didn't. That was... He didn't pursue her. He didn't do anything, you know, inappropriate. But we see that Thelma's taking some shots, doing some drinks, not feeling that well. No, and look, the thing about it is Thelma doesn't drink a lot, and I think Harlan, if he doesn't know that, he knows how to get even the woman who drinks the most 
to not feel good. Right. And so that he can get her outside. He's spinning her. The song's like over and he just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. Her. And this, this is just well done from a directing standpoint, from a script standpoint. All that's perfect because you as the viewer, the thing I love about this film is that we're with, we're the third member of this crew. Right. We're with these women the entire time. And so we see what's going on. And you know that Harlan's trying to get Thelma separated from everyone else because he wants to do whatever he wants to do to her. And that's exactly what happens. And he takes her outside. And man, I don't know. That's just every time that scene never gets easier to watch. Oh, no, it's it's a, it's so difficult to watch. And I, I do want to say, I mean, obviously, we're two middle-aged white dudes. Um, yep. <laughs> and try not to make the the male-female comparison the entire time through this episode. But I do want to say that this is 100% of the reason why you have to have different perspectives when you're writing. You can't have straight white guy or whatever writing a script with so many different aspects being involved because I don't think that there's a single guy on earth who isn't a predator who would be able to write the Harlan spinning her to get her yeah to get her sick stage note. And Callie Corey, I, I hope, had never been involved in anything like that. I have no idea. But it's very difficult for me to believe that a, a woman of 30 or however she, old she was when she wrote the script, either something like that hasn't happened to her, something like that hasn't happened to a friend of hers or whatever. And I just cannot imagine a straight guy or really any guy coming up with that. Ta- like that would be missing from the script. But when you watch it, it adds such a, a layer of terror. Like when I'm watching that, it's nothing that would ever cross my mind. But it's just like, oh, you motherfucker. Like, that's all you're yeah. thinking. And without Harlan saying more than five words leading up to that, you're just like, this this piece of shit. Look what he's... Do-. Like, I I just can't imagine coming up with that piece of writing. And that's why diversity in writer's rooms for TV shows or additional writers on scripts can be incredibly helpful and add those layers to your script that otherwise would be one note where it'd be like, oh, he just got her drunk and he took her out there. And I think that it's important that in this script that all of those things, like every time Thelma or Louise is getting used or abused, there's more layers to it. And I think that 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 adds a level of just horror to it that would otherwise go missed with a different writer. Completely agree, man. Very, very well said. Harlan takes her outside, forces himself on her. Louise comes out at the just right moment has that gun because Thelma put the gun in Louise's purse and puts the gun to Harlan's head and says, well, I'm not going to, I can't do the line justice. I just kind of want to play this exchange. Let her go. You let her go, you fucking asshole, or I'm going to splatter your ugly face all over this nice car. All right, hey, 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 just calm down. We're just having a little fun, that's all. Looks like you got a real fucked up idea of fun. Turn around. In the future, when a woman's crying like that, she isn't having any fun. Bitch! I should have gone ahead and fucked her. What did you say? I said, suck my cock. 
God. Oh, my God. Get the car. Oh, Jesus Christ. Louise, you shot him. Get oh, my God. You watch your mouth, buddy. And that's it. She kills him. Yeah. But they weren't, it wasn't self-defense because Thelma was already safe at this point. So this is coming from a totally different place when she kills him. Yeah. And again, another little crumb here, a little seed of we know that something has happened in Louise's past. Right. But it's all coming out now, and this is her getting revenge for that or whatever the case may be. But legally, and I, I'm being very serious here, how do you see this playing out if they go to the cops right after this? Because there's no self-defense because he wasn't attacking them anymore. So what? how does this kind of play out in your mind? Well, it, it depends. I mean, he can't tell the story. So, right. you know, if they if they go in and say, hey, he was, you know, he was raping her. She's got a bloody face. The waitress knows Harlan in, in the rosiest of glasses. And we have to assume that Hal is going to be the investigator, which I think is a gigantic fucking leap of faith. Yeah. It's potentially possible that everything goes okay. I really? W- I would say... It's a 95% chance that they get hung up for murder. <laughs> I think I think that's the far likelier choice because the the concept that the survivors are going to be believed, particularly when survivors are women, um, particularly when survivors are women of low income, not not high. Uh, I think that again, Thelma makes a really good point when she's like, "We can't go to the cops because." For the last hour and a half, you've been dancing with the guy, which, by the way, is not an invitation to have anything happen to you. But that's, you know, particularly we've heard that a million times. I mean, how many times have you heard, well, she's wearing that. She sort of had it coming. She shouldn't have been wearing that. Yeah. As disgusting and terrible as that is, the reality is Hal's probably not the cop that shows up. It's probably... You know, in a small town. Maybe it's one of Harlan's buddies, you know? That's what I was thinking, too. It's... The fear is real, and it's that's one of the, the scariest parts about this script is if I come out and shoot Harlan, I would call the cops immediately and be like, this is what this piece of shit was doing. And they would probably mm-hmm. look at me and say, good shot, Cole. But I completely buy, as both realistic uh, and scary, Louise's reaction to this whole thing is like, we got to get the fuck out of here. And that's what I love about this film. One of the many things is it's absolutely... Correct. This is what would happen. This is what's going through their mind. And the thing is, I don't know that a ton has changed today if this happens. No, I don't think so. I, I think it's it's very difficult to imagine this going differently today, which fucking sucks. I mean, I think that that, totally without question, is an awful reality to sit with. And the hardest thing to do is to say, like, personally, I probably don't have to sit with it. But when I look at my wife, my sister, my mom... Anyway, like I don't need to be related to women in order for this to be unbelievably scary uh, to the population out there. And it's it's it was a hard watch yesterday yeah, because it's, tough. it's an incredible movie. But you just sit there and go, I don't know what I would have done differently. Yeah, because, you know, doing what I do for a living, I would like to be able to sit here and say, well, just rest on the justice system. It's always, you know, it's always going to lean towards justice and everything working out. But unfortunately, that is not what I see on a day-to-day basis. And so I, I can't look at them and say, oh, if you had just at this point, if you had just stopped and called the cops and turned yourselves in, you know, it would have been okay. I, I, I can't say that. 
Absolutely can't say that. And that's not what they thought either. And that's why they drove off. And so they left Harlan dead in the parking lot there. And they drove off. They're speeding out of the parking lot. You know people saw them. You know people saw the car. And there's really no going back, in my opinion, after that. Like, there's really no good way out of this for either of them. You leave a body. Honestly, there's two mistakes that were made. One, that's a conspicuous car. You got a time to go get that Tercel uh, or trade it in (laughs) for a Tercel uh, and do that. Uh, The other is cut through Texas. You're going to need to get to Mexico a little quicker. Yeah, we'll get to that um, because now Harvey Keitel shows up. And I really think he's obviously accent, you know, notwithstanding, perfect in the role. I agree with you. Yeah. He he brings a gravitas to the role. I believe him as a a concerned investigator. I totally buy that. It was just, you know, Kevin Costner is my favorite actor, man. His English accent is not that great, but Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves (laughs) is one of the top three best movies ever made. So whatever. And, you know, you made a good point about sort of different scenes and how they use mirrors and things like that. Yeah. In the film, like some of the cinematography is really, really small, but interesting. I agree because like the use of the mirrors allows these characters to reflect on where their their current state. And so you see Louise looking in the mirror at herself and you can totally see without her saying a word that she's like, I don't have any options here. I've got I've got one play. I need to get all the money I can that I have in this world. I need to get my ass down to Mexico. And that's it. Like. You know, in the words of Tarantino, my USA privileges are revoked in a way. You know what I mean? And that's it. I'm done. So that's my goal. This road movie really starts to pick up here. And the question now is, Louise doesn't want to bring her friend Thelma down with her because she loves her. But she's like, look, I'm going to Mexico. That's what's happening. Jimmy's going to wire me $6,700. That's all the money I have. You want to come with me or you want to stay here? And that's it. And I love that Thelma's not sure. We don't know right away, and she doesn't know right away what she's going to do. But when she calls fucking Daryl to tell him what happened, like, I've been raped, this is what happened, whatever she's going to tell him, this piece of shit, first of all, is yelling at her right away because even though she left him a note, he doesn't fucking care. Where are you, Thelma? All that bullshit. And it's he's more interested in yelling at her and watching college football. And Thelma, because her character is now kind of, as you said, the shackles are off, she's growing She's like, I don't need this shit. I'd rather go to Mexico with Louise and live the rest of my life, work at Club Med, whatever the fuck I'm going to do. Right. I don't want to spend it with this guy. When, and another genius aspect of the storytelling, and this really goes to Saranda's performance as well, is giving her the choice. I think in a lot of other movies, the person who's really, you know, the person who pulled the trigger is the one who is saying, we're both fucked. You got to come with me. You have to come with me. You don't understand. We're both fucked. She's looking at Thelma and going, I'll take it. You don't have, you don't need this. You were already a victim. You don't have to do this, but I need to know now because the clock's ticking and this is where I'm headed. So you either get off here or we got to go like that's it. And again, there's a lot of small storytelling things because at the end of the day, it's a two hour and five minute movie or whatever, but it's not a ton of dialogue. You know, it's not monologue heavy or anything like that. You get to really see, and this goes, I think, totally to performance, because all you have to do is put the camera on Gina Davis or on Susan Sarandon to capture the magic of their facial expressions. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things, I mean, I've never been asked to be an actor, and that's probably a good thing, but I can't imagine (laughs) how long that kind of training takes to be like, how do I make my eye twitch just that much? Or how do I 
how do I look these three emotions? How does that happen without looking like Christopher McDonald, you know, like <laughs> without going <laughs> oh, way over the top? But shooter. <laughs> but I think that, you know, concentrating on Susan Sarandon specifically, the concern she has for Thelma, and even in times where she's disappointed in her, which we're going to get to a bunch of those. Mm-hmm. There's just that that love there that is just, it's that pure, I mean, we all have best friends in this world, and they, it's difficult to explain how it's unconditional. You know, to a certain degree, I think all love uh, is a touch conditional, except, you know, there's nothing wrong with my, like, I'll ride or die with my wife, obviously, but it's, you know, absent, like, hate crimes and stuff, like, I will do stuff for you that no one else will do for you. And that is what I think Louise is telling Thelma constantly through this movie. And it's it's why that bond is so interesting to watch. And to that point, which I totally agree with, it really is a love story between them. At part of the core of this is the love that exists in the friendship, the love that exists between these two women, and the things that they wouldn't do for others, as you say, they would do for each other. Because as much as Jimmy, the Michael Madsen character, loves Louise, wants to marry her, proposes, flies two states to to give her the money, she doesn't need that. She doesn't trust men after what happened to her, but she trusts Thelma, and she will trust Thelma with all that money. Like, Jimmy, give me the money. I'm going to take that envelope. I'm going to go give it to Thelma right. because I'm going to trust her with this. She's she's my companion here in, in this whole thing. And I, unfortunately, Michael Madsen seems like a good guy. Maybe got a little bit of a temper uh, in the film, but I, Louise is not all in with him, but she's all in with Thelma. Right. And, you know, I, I think too, they sort of set Madsen up to be a really bad guy. A, because it's Michael Madsen, even though he wasn't that yet. But, you know, Thelma talks about like, oh, you got that piece of shit boyfriend. You know, when are you going to leave him? When are you going to leave that guy? Right. And so you get yeah. the impression that, you know, he's kind of not around a bunch or whatever it is. And then it does a great job sort of rope doping the audience when it's like, hey, will you send me this money? You just automatically think like, oh, he's going to do something sinister. There's going to be something. Mm-hmm. Somehow he's going to screw her over, steal all her money, whatever it is. But before we get to that, we we get probably the person who... I guess you would say is the the winner career wise of this movie somehow. <laughs> it's, yeah, you get young Brad Pitt. You get young Brad Pitt. I mean, and his story, real quick before we get into the the actual you know character that he plays, his story of getting to this part is kind of crazy because yeah, he auditioned for it, really wanted, it. and it's a, it's a small part, but it's a it's a definitely a and starring type of part. Like if this yeah. was a TV show, this would be like you might not be in it long, but there's going to be an interesting you know five or six minutes. And so he auditioned a bunch, wasn't getting it. They wanted to give it to Billy Baldwin for some reason. Billy Baldwin is was the was at the top of somebody's casting list back in the day. By the way, I cannot. Whenever I hear the name Billy Baldwin, the first thing that comes to mind is forgetting Sarah Marshall when he's freaking out <laughs> drunk, doing "You're fucking Billy Baldwin, aren't you?" <laughs> it's the best thing ever. I'm sorry. It's just so fucking funny. See, I gotta. I have to marry that with. Can you say Dixical? <laughs> God. You know NBC was so pissed they put that in there because they're like, that's a great idea for a show. <laughs> so anyway, so Billy Baldwin was supposed to get the part. He accepts the part. He's doing the part, but there were some delays in production. And because of the delays of production, uh, or during the delays rather, Brad Pitt had auditioned for this part in Backdraft. 
So Billy Baldwin pulls out of Thelma and Louise, goes and does backdraft, mm-hmm. which then opens up this part for Brad Pitt to eventually fall. I think he was actually the third choice. So they went to somebody else for JD. Wasn't really working out. And then I read this interview with Gina Davis where they were like, they brought in a couple of the, the people who were going to replace Billy as JD. And I read with them. And so I read that the first couple of guys were fine. Everything was good. And then Brad Pitt walks in and she's like, I was just kind of so taken aback that I kept fucking up my lines. Like I just sort of, <laughs> yeah, I kept like, I was, it was giggly and you know, we had this really good rapport or whatever. And she goes afterwards when they're talking about who it's going to be, they kept talking about the other guys. And she's like, I look at the room and I'm like, Hey, Guys, duh, it's the blonde one. Like, that's yeah. who, that, this is who it is. And then Brad Pitt does this really uh, interesting interview where he's like, you know, they were kind of talking about what it was like to film that scene and he was super green and all that stuff. And he goes, you know, unfortunately, Callie wrote this beautiful little baby monologue for me about, you know, robbing the, the store and what he does with the uh, hair dryer and everything. And he's like, look, I, I didn't nail that. Like, Gina took me through that whole scene. Like I was very flat in that. I was just very, really not good in it, which I a hundred percent agree with. (laughs) Like, like I 100% agree that he wasn't very good in this movie while still being able to say the minute you see him on screen, you're like, he's a fucking star. The interesting part to me is that I read that George Clooney auditioned four times and it was between George Clooney and Brad Pitt for this role. Oh shit. I did not read that. George Clooney did. Like he really wanted the role. Because he was stuck doing TV, he said at the time. And he said he didn't watch the movie for years. No he shit. Couldn't, he couldn't take because he wanted that role. And then when he finally saw it, he's like, yeah, Brad was the perfect choice for that role. He was he was the better choice. He definitely would can been. you imagine George Clooney in that role? No, because George Clooney's too much of a con man. No way. Yeah, I agree. There's no way. You need that innocence of Brad Pitt, but there's also something else there with the character. You need the boyish cockiness of Brad Pitt. Yep. That you, yep. even because I've seen old episodes of Facts of Life where like George Clooney shows up and every time you look at him, you're like, eh, there's something working. Something's working. It's all there. Danny Ocean. Yeah. It's fucking Danny Ocean. He's Danny Ocean and Roseanne. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, and you know, we've talked in the past about like Brad Pitt being just way too good looking for what could have been maybe the greatest character actor ever. Yeah. And I think George Clooney was one of those guys that is burdened by the fact that, like, at 20, he looked like he had the wisdom of a 45-year-old. So he's always looking like <laughs> yeah. he's working angles. And you're like, I-, I can't buy you is sort of sheepish. Like, that doesn't work. I'm sorry. I do think it's interesting because, obviously, Thelma's really attracted to the JD character. And she wants to, I don't know, sow her wild oats, whatever you want to call it, um, <laughs> in this whole thing. That's a phrase. People use that phrase. People use that phrase. I I mean, 85-year-old people use that phrase, but okay, she <laughs> wants to sow her oats. Gotcha. And so the fact that, like, Louise is focused on, we need to get our asses down to Mexico, but Thelma's still like, well, we can pick up this hitchhiker and take him to Oklahoma City because that's where we're going to pick up the money. It's like, I really want to say, Thelma, I don't think you realize how much trouble you're fucking in and actually picking up people and having them along for the ride that can maybe talk about your whereabouts or what you're thinking of doing. Probably not the best idea right. here. And Louise is like, no, nah, we're not going to, we're not going to pick him up. But then they see him again and Thelma's begging him because Louise, such a good friend, I guess. It's like, yeah, all right, let's, let's take him. We'll take him to Oklahoma city. And that's it. That was the only thing that I didn't quite understand about Louise. This was the only part of her character that I thought I didn't quite buy that decision because she's, she's really working tactically in the first, especially in the first day afterwards, where she's like, 
I'm trying to think, I'm trying to figure this shit out, but I, I got, I need some rest. Like, I've got to be able to think clearly. I can't just throw this hodgepodge shit together. So they check into that motel and they just trying to think it through. And she's like, oh, that fucking guy? Yeah, no, we can get ass later. Like, that's not a problem. Let's, <laughs> we, we need to hightail it down to Mexico. And then for whatever reason, she's like, okay, he can come with us to Oklahoma City. And that, that part never made sense to me, but makes for a compelling film. So I'm not like against it. It does because they arrive at the hotel and Jimmy's there. So he didn't wire the money. He just took the money himself. Michael Madsen gives a very good performance here. You see the dynamic between the two of them. He asks Louisa Merriam. She's not interested in any of that. They, you know, spend that night together. But JD, they dropped off there. It's raining outside. A lot of rain in this film, by the way. A ton of rain, especially when the sun's out all the time. Interesting choice. Got to get him wet. Got to get him wet. Exactly. And so JD knocks on Thelma's door and comes in and we get those great, that great scene between them. And then he goes over how to rob a bank or rob a place, which comes back. And I do, I know you, you know, alluded to it earlier with Gina Davis helping him through that, but I do like the way he does his performance with this line right here. All right. Then I'd waltz right in. Yep. Then I just kind of waltz on in and I say, ladies. Gentlemen, let's see who wins the prize for keeping their cool. Simon says, everybody down on the floor. Now, nobody loses their head, then nobody loses their head. Uh, you, sir. Yeah, you do the honors. Take that cash, you put in that bag right there. You got an amazing story to tell your friends. If not, well, you got a tag on your toe. You decide. Yeah, it's great. It's like, it's one of the most iconic scenes in the film. Oh, it is. I, and I'm, I don't deny that whatsoever. I just, yeah. I've always had this sort of Nicolas Cage debate with myself as to, <laughs> is Brad Pitt good or not? Because he's either typically extraordinary or JD. And <laughs> J, J, it's an iconic scene. I can't fight that. But it's just one of those like the twang's a little little firm. It's yeah. just a little it's a little much, which is weird because he's like from that area. Yep. But it doesn't take away from the greatness of the scene. No, definitely not. And after he shows her that, then it's time for them to, well... Have sex. And what I love about this scene is, and I mean, every time I've watched it recently, notice it more and more. Gina Davis, beautiful woman, as we said, you don't see her in sexualizing this scene at all. It's all Brad Pitt. And this is a great fucking choice because this movie is about the women and it's about them. And a lot of times, even when movies are like that, the women get sexualized to this point. But no, Brad Pitt is. No, we're going to have Brad Pitt. We're going to have him shirtless. He's going to look amazing to all these women out there. And we're going to focus on his body. And it's just a fucking great, great directorial choice. And I think Gina Davis even said, like, they wanted to get him, like, like wet, lathered up, all this stuff. And Ridley Scott was very particular about how he wanted it to look. And you don't really see Gina Davis in the scene that much. Right. Like, you don't really. It's, it's focused on him and it's really fucking well done it's perfect they had to make up for all that guest jeans commercial acting that brad pitt was bringing to the set so they were like <laughs> let's fire up what we hired you for brad i do not agree with cole on this one i think your performance is is very good so when you're on the show just remember that jed thinks your performance is very good cole thinks you're a one step above a mark Wahlberg <laughs> calvin klein ad yeah yeah that's about right but Louise uh, gives Thelma the money earlier, and so now Thelma's in the room with JD, 
and we go to the next day and Louise and Jimmy are in the diner. Jimmy gives Louise the ring and Jimmy, Jimmy leaves and Thelma comes in and Thelma has never been happier in her fucking life because she finally got fucked properly. I mean, that's basically what they say. That's what Louise says. I mean, 100%. But can we just talk real quickly about Michael Madsen and what they did with that character? Because I thought he did a great job with it. I I like that they didn't make him 100% good or 100% bad. Mm -hmm. For such a small character, I thought it was nuanced enough to where it was completely believable. Because, again, a lesser script either makes him the white knight rolling in with the money and saying, do whatever you got to do. I've loved you for whatever. I love you, whatever. But he does some, you know, he wrecks some shit in the hotel room and he's disappointed and he kisses her and they have a good talk and he ends up leaving. But there's always some ambiguity in there as to was it a good relationship? Was it not? But most importantly, it's about what Louise wants and and what Louise needs. And that's fantastic. I love that they made that choice. And I thought he was a good selection, you know, for the part. And I guess they wanted him to be Harlan. And he was like, no, dude, if I do that part, I'm going to be the I'm going to be the rapist forever. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm not doing Harlan. Um, so I'll do this and then Reservoir Dogs and I can be the psycho murderer forever. So he made an interesting career choice, but I thought he was exceptionally good, uh, particularly for the little bit that he had to do. Hey, every time I hear Stuck in the Middle with you, I think of him. You have so to. It all worked out for him. Yeah. <laughs> so like you said, Thelma comes in super happy. And then when she says, oh, JD's taking a shower, Louise is like, we got fucked. I know it. Yep. We're done. And she, I mean, she knows it immediately. And it's that sort of intelligence and that sort of clarity that always makes me question why she allowed JD to come to Oklahoma. I agree. But they they figure out all the money is stolen. And this is another point where like lesser scripts have the friend just berate the shit out Mm of Thelma. And that's not what happens here. Like she's disappointed. She's like, how could you do that? How could you be so naive? How could that happen? And... Then they just kind of move on. I mean, Louise is destroyed. Oh, she is. Oh, 100%. Louise has a fucking complete breakdown. She's sitting on the ground. She's then in a car. She's despondent. She's like, that's it. I'm I'm detached from reality right now. And I mean, my life's over. Everything's done. My one plan that I had, I needed that money. I needed to get to Mexico. I don't have that money anymore. I can't get to Mexico. Well, And what I love about it is that Thelma, every time she makes a mistake, makes up for it in spades, or at least tries to. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she she becomes this different person full of confidence, and she's like, all right, this dickhead scammed me, but he also taught me how to scam. Yep. And so that scene where she goes in and we don't follow her, and this is, you know, this predates Tarantino, but since Tarantino's been, what everybody's been talking about the last few weeks, this is one of those you don't see the bank robbery in Reservoir Dogs. I, I don't need to see the robbery at this point. They just focus on Susan Sarandon who, like you said, is just destroyed. And mm-hmm. she looks over and she sees the older women sitting in there and they're like looking at her and there's this sort of connected depression, it seems. And she tries yeah. to put the lipstick on and throws it away, can't do it. And no words needed. It's just a spectacular, spectacular performance. And then the rejuvenation she gets when she realizes, I really have a partner here. I really have yeah. a partner. She went in. She did some shit I might not agree with, but <laughs> fuck it. Like it, it's watching that kind of a good friendship movie. It it allows you to say whatever they do, I'm in. Yeah, and there's Absolutely. N- there's nothing that Thelma and Louise do in this film that I judge them morally for. And it's not just because of having shitty relationships or having shitty things happen to them. It's because I get it. I fucking understand why they're doing it. 
and shittier scripts would go in and concentrate on how cool robbing the liquor store was. Like, shittier movies go in there and think that that's what's interesting. And what was interesting in this was Susan Sarandon sitting in that damn car. Absolutely. And even when you see the robbery uh, in a few scenes later, you see it in black and white because it's on the security footage from the diner. Or sorry, from the market. And it's it's perfect. I love Daryl's reaction. Daryl's life is falling apart without Thelma. This is something that I don't think that character realized was going to happen, how, realized how much he needed her. But his life is a complete mess without her. The FBI, Harvey Keitel, everyone is camped out at his place. They've tapped his phone. And when they bring him into the station there to watch the tape, and I love Tobolowski eating the fucking sandwich. is just like perfect. And he's watching it. And then when, when Thelma's like, oh, and I want that uh, wild turkey you got back there. And he's just like, wild turkey? Like, what, what the, who is this fucking woman? Like, I, I, this is not a person I know at all. Well, and I love, too, how much of a piece of shit Harvey Keitel thinks Daryl is. Oh, God. It's it's so wonderful because, like, when he shows up to the house and he's looking at him and you could tell that Daryl doesn't really care at the beginning. No, you know, he doesn't give a shit. sort of concerned, but, not, like, not really. It's more about, like, you guys are here, why? And then he's looking at him like, um, I'm sorry to laugh at you, but you're you're stepping in pizza. Like you're standing in fucking pizza. And the way the way McDonald says, What? 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 <laughs> he just says about the whole film and it's like it's perfect. God damn it. I love it, man. Yeah. It's just, the gold watch is perfect is, too. It's perfect. Gold oh watch. god. He has nailed that guy, like used car salesman to a T. Yep. Oh, is what it's that perfect. man is. It's perfect. But the robbery snaps Louise back to reality, and, and they're on the run now. And Brad Pitt gets brought in, and Harvey Keitel has to interrogate him because he's like, look, you got $6,600, and that's a very close sum to what Jimmy gave to Louise. And he's like, where were these women going? What's going on? And like he spills the beans, and it turns out that Thelma had told JD, like, look, if you're ever in Mexico, you should look us up. Again, Dumb move. Yeah. Dumb fucking move. It's just that that naivete never being out in the real world really comes back to bite her in the ass. It really does. It really does. And, you know, we have, they kind of finally come to the whole thing about what happened to Louise and what's going on with her kind of kind of comes to fruition. And we get this uh, somewhat of a climactic scene between Thelma and Louise where Thelma like figures out, she's like, look. You were raped in Texas. That's why you don't want to go through there. That's why we have to go on this roundabout kind of Western route to get down to Mexico because that's what happened. And that's where Louise, like for the first time, is like, don't fucking talk to me about this ever again. Yeah. This is a line we are not going to cross. And Thelma gets it. And it's good because Thelma's kind of joked. You know, she's like like a little kid smoking the cigarette in the beginning of the movie. Like, I'm Louise. I'm cool. Like, looks up to her all this stuff, and it's kind of an uh, interesting dynamic they have throughout the film, and it all comes to a head here, and then Thelma understands her a lot more now. They've connected on a level that they never could before. Well, there was a really, at the beginning of the movie, there's like a Sandra D. Rizzo from Greece yeah. admiration, where it's like, oh, I want to be this hardened cool girl, but I have no concept as to why that girl is hardened and cool, and I... I think that that's exactly what happens in this. And you just see, you know, I remember, you know, in Greece where Sandy tries to smoke the cigarette the first time. It's just like when Thelma tries to smoke it the first time. Uh-huh. And then by the end of the movie, I mean, Thelma's ripping a heater like a fucking pro. Tell me about it, stud. 
Please don't say that to me. <laughs> I, I, I had to, man. I mean, I didn't know you were going to bring up Grease on this pl- fucking episode. Pl- please don't ruin Olivia Newton-John for me. <laughs> Why are they flying in the car at the end? Please don't ruin Olivia Newton-John for me. Why is the car flying at the end of the... I don't get it in, like, Greece. It just makes no sense. Well, the car's flying at the end of this one, too. So it all well, comes yes, together. This makes, this makes it sense, all, but... It's all full but Greece, I still don't, like... What the fuck is it? Yeah, I mean, whatever. Anyway, that'll be for the Greece podcast, which will be after the Greece 2 one. Obviously. Of course. Always lead with the Caulfield. <laughs> Obviously. So... They're in New Mexico, they're driving through, and they get pulled over, and I don't know, man, I look forward to this scene every fucking time the movie comes on. I love the cop. Oh my god, it's a Nazi. What's she doing? She's kind of walking this way. <laughs> she's like, when she's like, it's a fucking Nazi. <laughs> I know. It's so it. perfect. I mean, he's like, he's getting ready to invade Poland. It's, it's fucking perfect. And, oh man, I just... Thelma has the great quote when she goes up to the car. Am I in trouble, officer? As far as I'm concerned, yes, ma'am, you're in a lot of trouble. Hello, this is 9-8. You want to step back and get in your car again, please? Officer, I am so sorry about this. Would you let go of that? Now, I really, really apologize, but would you put your hands on the steering wheel? See, if you get on that radio, you're going to find out that we're wanted in two states and probably considered armed and dangerous. At least I am. And, and then our whole plan is just going to be all shot to hell. I mean, this cop is a tough guy and now he's crying. And I mean, these women have it under control. They are, you know, Bonnie and Bonnie. So they, they've got this whole thing going on here. And I love they put him in the trunk. Got to have the air holes. Got to shoot the radio. And all right, there, there's zero chance of coming back from any of this. And they have to know that. So it's like, hopefully we get to Mexico. But if we don't, I mean, we're not going to fucking jail. Right. Well, and I, I want to go back to that cop scene really quickly, because, again, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there's a couple aspects of it that other people don't write. I think there's some hidden terror in it. I think there's some hidden just absolute suspense in it, which is why is Louise in the car? He puts Louise into the yeah. car to start interrogating her, nothing good is going to come from that. Right. That's not how that happens. So instantly, because particularly of what we've just like heard Louise and Thelma talk about, we're like, oh my God, this cop's going to fucking do that shit, right? And I'm still not convinced he wasn't. Like, I have no, I have no illusion that that's not what he was going to do. And... This is where Thelma just sort of, you see that maturation. She's like, give me that fucking gun. I'm, I'm going to go threaten to kill a cop. Yep. That's what I'm going to do. And she's now the one directing Louise, like, shoot the radio. And she shoots, like, the FM radio. And she's like, no, shoot the <laughs> cop radio. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yep. Shoot the police radio. And then I also want to say, and I hope he does because what a piece of shit cop. But there's no fucking way he doesn't die in that trunk. What is it? A hundred outside? Oh, God. No shit. He's in his full uniform with two air holes. There's no fucking yeah, possible way. No, nah, he did. I mean, he might have got that hit from the Rastafarian that comes through, <laughs> but that was the last piece of oxygen he ever smoked, man, because it was... He's done. But I love I loved Thelma taking fucking charge in that moment. I do, too. It's, it's so great when it happens. And, it's fucking perfect. And she's been learning from Louise the whole time, so it doesn't strike me as fake. It, it's, not, it's not faux heroism. It is absolutely believable that she's like, this is what we do. Yeah, exactly. And that, that cyclist that comes by and is just fucking takes that big rip off the blunt 
and just blows it in the air hole. I mean, it's just, that's just perfect. With the Walkman rubber band to his arm. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. I mean, there's nothing for miles. That dude has been biking for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. And that cop is way dead. Like there's way dead, so dead. The, the fact that well, they even took his his Mills Light, right, or yeah. Bud Light, or whatever was in the trunk. I mean, they they took that, so he didn't have anything to drink. Nothing, nothing. Dehydrated. <laughs> yep, totally. We end up with Louise. They call the house, uh, you know, because now she's like Daryl knows all this stuff. Louise calls. She stays on the phone a little too long with Kaitel, and and they have the location now. So we know that we're getting towards an ending here. We're getting towards a final kind of climax and a, and a conflict. And we've had this trucker that we talked about in the beginning that they've seen several times throughout. They've passed him on the road every time he's doing horrible things with his tongue, making these horrible, you know, cat calls at them, all this, all this shit. And they kind of look at each other and it's even not even said. And it's like, we know what they're going to do. And they both know what they're going to fucking do. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's time. Let's pull over here, buddy. And, I just love, I just love the exchange with them and the trucker here. Where are you going? Fresno. We've been seeing you all over the place. Why don't you take off those shades? I want to see your eyes. Yeah, I've been seeing you too. Yeah, we think you have really bad manners. (laughs) Yeah, where do you get off behaving like that with women you don't even know? Huh? Huh? How'd you feel if somebody did that to your mother? Or your sister? Or your wife? Huh? What are you talking about? You know good and damn well what I'm talking about. I mean, really? That business with your tongue? What is that? That is disgusting. And oh my God, that other shit of pointing to your lap. I mean, what is that supposed to mean exactly, huh? I mean, does that mean pull over? I want to show you what a big fat slob I am? Yeah, or does that mean suck my dick? You women are crazy. You got that right. We think you should apologize. I ain't apologizing for shit. You say you're sorry. Fuck that. You say you're sorry, or I'm gonna make you fucking sorry. Oh, Jesus. I bet you even called us favors on your CB radio, didn't you? Yeah, sure did. Damn, I hate that. I hate being called a beaver, don't you? You gonna apologize or what? Fuck you! Oh, Oh, God damn, you bitch! I don't think he's gonna apologize. Nah, I don't think so. It's just, I clap every time it happens. <laughs> I do too. This is my favorite scene. Even though I was given the trucker shit for his acting earlier, it's my favorite scene in the whole movie because it's perfect. You see after the cop, I mean, there's a lot of times in the movie when you look back and you go, maybe that was the fuck it scene. Nope, nope, that wasn't it. Maybe this was the fuck it scene. Nah. When they look at each other, they're like, all right, trucker, let's do it. That's the fuck it scene. To yep. me, that is the, we don't give a shit anymore. If we accomplish what we want to accomplish, cool, but 
we're not going to jail. Like it's not happening. So I, I just love that scene. I love every ounce of a piece of shit that he is. Like I said, I, I may have liked it him to not have been such a caricature of it, but it's my favorite scene. They, I also obviously love the late eighties, early nineties concept that one thirty-eight bullet would explode an entire uh, <laughs> gas tanker. I don't think that's how that works, but it's science, Cole. You don't know about that. Stuff? I don't. Come it, on. It, it, all, in all honesty, I don't. So <laughs> yeah, it could work. It could work. Who knows? But the scene is, is perfect. As you say, and this kind of gets us to the end because now the cops are hot on their tail. They see the cops as they're driving on the opposite side of the freeway. The cops turn around. They're chasing them. They're just fucking through the desert here. And they're just driving. And then all of a sudden, they have to slam on the brakes. And you as the audience, you're not sure what's going on. And then you see it. And you're like, oh, right. We got a big fucking canyon in their way. They're not really going to be able to get to Mexico, are they? Because they didn't want to go through Texas. And they didn't make it all the way to California. So they're a little fucked here. And they got this huge canyon that they cannot get past. And they got all these cops on their tail. I love the shots of the cops overhead where you see like the helicopter come out of nowhere. Very Tony Scott uh, shot there. And you see all the cop cars chasing them. And you're like, there's zero way out of this. Spectacular shot. It's unbelievable. With the one car leading, you get the early version of the flying V. It's just fucking incredible. And the dust trail, like that scene is nothing without the dust trails to me. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. And so what happens is, is like Kaitel's on the bullhorn and he's like, this is it. You guys are surrounded. Like this is, you got to kind of turn yourself in and they look at each other and you know it as the audience and they know it. And I just love, I just, I can't say it nearly as good or never will be able to as, as they do. So I'm just going to, play that what are you doing i'm not giving up max you gotta do something how many times max how many times that we're gonna be fucked over hey listen will you pull yourself together now listen to me you calm down don't make me sorry i brought you damn it i repeat cut your engine off and place your hands in plain view Okay, then, listen. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. What do you mean? Go! You sure?
my heart breaks for him. It does because every time. These women do not deserve this. They no. just they don't deserve what happened to them. They don't deserve their fate. But at least they controlled their fate yeah. in some way, and they decided how it was going to end. And every time I watch this movie, I'm hoping it doesn't happen. I know, and it's so weird because I've seen it so many times. But you're just going, not this time, not this mm-hmm. time. Like, even at the beginning of the movie, you start going, "Just call the cops. This one's a good one. Like, please, like, just it doesn't have yeah. to do that." But it's also a spectacular ending. It's very much a rip on Butch and Sundance. There's of really, course. really no way to get around that. But I'm fine if you're gonna rip a fucking phenomenal ending to a phenomenal movie. That yeah, that's perfect to me. I also love. That we end with the car suspended in air. Yeah. I love that. I do have a minor nitpick. I, I hate mm-hmm. to try and be, bring potential undue levity to a very serious scene, but they sit there and they kind of are talking for a minute and they're talking about the Grand Canyon and all that, right? There's no way that's the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to bring this up. Because, sure, you can go from Oklahoma, you can go around the panhandle of Texas for some god-awful reason... But wouldn't you instantaneously go south down the border of Texas and just get into Mexico as quick as possible? I would think. As opposed to take the 10 all the way across and like get up on like like the 44, whatever it is. But the Grand Canyon is northern Arizona. Like yep. it's not it's not by Mexico. And if you're going to bypass Texas, I figured you would like start going south immediately. I, I just it's not the Grand Canyon is my own my whole point or if it is the grand canyon they kind of deserve to get caught because they're adding days to their trip that is just totally unnecessary yeah yeah i i, I agree with that but it still doesn't take away from the emotionality no and the pay dirt that no been earned. no <laughs> they earn every minute of that i just i i want him to get away and i feel like maybe with a better map guy maybe alan ruck from twister they would have been able to find the uh the side roads and been able to get it done. Yeah, they would have made it to Zewataneo. That would have been an unbelievable ending to the Shawshank Redemption if they got down. <laughs> if Morgan Freeman gets down to Zewataneo and it's Tim Robbins with Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. Yep. <laughs> nice little bed and breakfast. I think I'm just saying phenomenal Shawshank ending. Would have been really interesting. <laughs> so that's the film, man. Um, one of my favorites, as you said. Watch it uh, every year or so, at least once, because it just gets better and better. And they don't make films like this these days. And if they were to make a film like this, hopefully they never reboot it. But if they were to, they'd add a lot of extra shit that's not necessary. I just want to ask you, are you surprised that like more of these buddy movies with female protagonists haven't been made? I am surprised because they've made like The Heat and a few other ones, but those are comedies. Right. They haven't made a serious one like this. And I don't know why, because this film did really well. I think it was like $16 million budget and it made like 45 or something right. like that. So it's done well and there's a market for this. Like women don't need to just see other women in films and just be comic relief or have those two things like together there. Like this shit works. So maybe they're out there. And I just haven't seen these movies, but I don't remember really seeing anything like this. No, it's just make a good film. And this is a, a spectacular film. And I guess I was surprised. And I, I think Gina Davis was too. I, she's got a great Mark Maron podcast interview out there, by the way. But she kind of said, like, we were told this was going to explode the whole thing. And just those scripts didn't come. It just didn't happen. Yeah. And I, I'm so fucking surprised that we don't see more of those films. Because this is an incredible, incredible movie. 
No, I agree with you. They they haven't. I don't know where those films are, but uh, they need to make more of them um, because I I love it. I love it. It's all good stuff. So what about you, man? What do you got for recommendations for the people? All right. So I've got a recommendations kind of for everybody involved here. So with respect to Ridley Scott, I think we all know his filmography. You know, most people kind of start with Alien and then go through. I mean, his 2000 to now, he's become sort of a Mount Everest sort of modern director. But mm-hmm. check out The Duelists. Really interesting film. It's from the late 70s. It's got Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine in it. And it's one of his early movies because, you know, he was a, like... Hall of Fame commercial director over in the UK. He he filmed like a couple thousand commercials. He was like the go-to guy yeah. for that and then transitioned into making features. And The Duelist is a really interesting film. I think you have to rent or buy that on Amazon. I, I, I don't think it's anywhere free to stream, but a really cool movie and a really cool Kaitel performance. For Gina Davis, I have two. Beetlejuice, obviously, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Phenomenal Keaton, great Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis, just really fun movie uh, check that out but also watch the long kiss goodnight i'm a big long kiss goodnight fan me too man i'm a big born fan so that movie's perfect for me yeah it's a spec she is so good in that film and it got mixed reviews and i don't really think it even did that well but oh just a great action thriller it's got kind of ideas of memento in it this woman who can't really remember much but as she's put in more in more situations she's things start to come back to her um, it's really, really interesting movie. And then for Susan Sarandon, she's got an incredible filmography. She's won an Oscar. She's done great work, but go watch Bull Durham. If you haven't seen Bull Durham, I mean, it's the, it's the perfect movie. <laughs> there's, there's no <laughs> her and Kevin Costner. And obviously I think KC has chemistry with everybody. Their chemistry is stupid. Good. Like it's, I get, I feel awkward because Tim Robbins is in the film and I'm just like, how, like, how could you even think you could measure up after watching that on set for however many months? Come on, man. Like no shit. It's just, it's just unbelievable. So those are my recommendations. Jed, what do you got? I stuck to more of the road movies. So obviously Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, a great film. Everyone needs to see. Yeah, I mean, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Catherine Ross, all just fucking great performances all around. God, Catherine Ross is so good in that, too. Like, she had a great... She's good in everything, man. She had an amazing run in the 70s. Fuck yeah. Uh, Lost in America. So, Albert Brooks, Julie Haggerty, love this fucking movie. I'm going to call it a road movie um, because they're in a fucking Winnebago for the majority of the film. Love it. And it's, it's just great. Great scene with Gary Marshall in Vegas, yep. where as an ad executive, he tries to say that I can make an ad campaign if you give me all the money back that we lost, your hotel can be known as the one that gives money back. And <laughs> Gary Marshall's like, why would I want my hotel and casino to be known for that? <laughs> what the fuck are you t- <laughs> it's, it's great. It's great. Some great scenes in that film. Uh, Duel, which is a Steven Spielberg film, um, one of his first ones, and I believe it actually was a TV movie, but it's one of my favorites. And it's just a crazy trucker who is chasing this guy for no reason, and we never find out why. And it's just a psychological action thriller that is really fucking good and well and well done. And you can just see the passion Spielberg has and that he's going to be a great filmmaker, and he really has become one. And the last one is uh, Martin Bress' Midnight Run. So this is Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin. This movie's fucking hilarious. I can't not laugh when you say Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin. 
I know. <laughs> it's also got like, doesn't it have Joey Pants in it too? It does. It does. It does. It has Philip Baker Hall as well. And the interesting thing about that is Philip Baker Hall's character is named Sidney. And Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie, he wanted to call it Sidney. The studio called it Heart Eight. But Philip Baker Hall basically plays the character from Midnight Run. A little bit of inside baseball there for you. <laughs> and uh, man, I don't know if you listen to the DGA podcast where PTA interviews Quentin Tarantino about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. No, but I definitely need to. The only thing I hate about those interviews is they're like a half an hour long, and I just want those two to talk forever. Right. Why don't they just follow our podcast and go on for like two, two and a half hours, like whatever? No shit. <laughs> Turns out if they just say the same thing over and over again, it'll go longer. Like, that's our, that's what we do. <laughs> that's all we do. That's pretty much our shtick. <laughs> but that's about it for Rex, man. So, uh, yeah, this was so much fun. This is such a great film. Yeah. Everyone, you got to watch this. Oh, yeah. Check this one out. Definitely, guys. Well, hey, thanks for joining us for Thelma and Louise. You can find us at SigBurnsPod on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at cigaretteburnspodcast at yahoo.com. We're loving the comments. You guys are really kind of shaping what we want to do with this podcast. We're also looking at changing the format just a touch because uh, we've heard from a couple of you guys like, hey, you know, you may want to think about making them a little bit shorter. So we, we tend to just kind of have the conversation that we have and it is what it is. But we're thinking about making some additional episodes that are just our reviews. So that way we can get into the movie or the subject matter that we're talking about that week. So look out for a couple of additional episodes where they may just be 15, 20 minutes long. It's just reviews of movies we're seeing as we're seeing them. Some of those episodes might have Jed and I. Some of them might just be me or Jed. But we want to get you guys out those reviews because we got so many movies coming out that if we start doing reviews on the top of all the movies, these podcasts are going to go on forever. And as much as we want to talk to you that long, I don't think you want to hear our voices that long. So anyway, thanks so much for joining us, guys. We loved it. And we hope you have a good one. We'll see you next time. Later, Burners. What? 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 <laughs> Excuse me. You're standing in your pizza. Oh, shit. <laughs>